When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, Literary Director of the Sun Valley Writers Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. In this episode, I'm joined by my friend, Harvard Law Professor Noah Feldman, to talk about his fascinating just-published book, The Broken Constitution, Lincoln, Slavery, and the Refounding of America. Noah is not simply one of the country's most brilliant thinkers about the Constitution and its place in the history and social fabric of America. He's the author of 10 previous books, including an exceptional political biography of James Madison. He's a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. And he's the host of Pushkin Industries' Deep Background podcast, which is on my short list of favorite podcasts currently being produced. If you don't know Deep Background, you should definitely start listening to it. But today, I'm pleased to say, it's my great pleasure to get to ask Noah the questions rather than the other way around. So welcome, Noah, and thanks so much for coming on Beyond the Page. John, thank you so much for having me, and that was a very too generous introduction. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. So you were at the Writers' Conference this past summer, which was fantastic. And before your book was out, that was a few months before the publication, which I should add is November 2nd, pub date. You gave a riveting talk in Sun Valley about Lincoln and the broken constitution. And there's a short clip from that talk right at the beginning that I thought might be a great way just to introduce our listeners contextually to the subject of your book and how it relates to the times we're living in today. And then we can dive into the deeper waters in our conversation after. All right with you? Absolutely. Great. Okay, let's take a listen. Let me begin by acknowledging what I think is pretty clear to people who watch TV and read the newspapers, which is that there's no more pressing debate, controversy, in our public lives today than the question of whether our Constitution has slavery and racism baked into it from the beginning, or whether there's an alternative picture of our institutions, our founders, of people like Hamilton and Madison and Lincoln, that presents a richer, more complex, and perhaps less depressing picture of our institutions and where they come from. And this question isn't just a theoretical one or a historical one. It has huge stakes for how we think of ourselves as a people and how we think of ourselves as a country and for how in the future we can organize and arrange our lives to make our country better than it is today. I wrote The Broken Constitution because I wanted to know what the best answer to this question was. And to do it, I knew I had to go back into history And what I found there genuinely surprised and even astonished me. 
What I found was a story much more dramatic, much more outrageous in certain ways, and much more complicated than I learned in school or that I learned over the course of a career as a student and teacher of the Constitution. We think our Constitution is and always was a higher law, a moral blueprint for how we should live our lives. It wasn't. We think simultaneously that we have the same constitution that we have always had since 1787, when people like James Madison and Alexander Hamilton first drafted it. It turns out we don't. And perhaps most shocking, we think that Abraham Lincoln saved our constitution. He didn't. In fact, Abraham Lincoln broke our constitution in order to remake it as something new. And the moment at which he realized that he would have to do that and the ways in which he did that are a kind of reversal of the entire trajectory of his life and career up until he assumed the presidency in the spring of 1861. One of the things I love about that clip and one of the thrilling things about your book, The Broken Constitution, is what we just heard, namely that not only are we going to be surprised, possibly even shocked by aspects of Lincoln's relationship with slavery and the Constitution that we will learn, but that you yourself were surprised and maybe even a bit shocked by what you discovered as you were writing the book. So I guess what I would ask you first is, how is it that you, who know so much more about the, the Constitution than most people and the Founding Fathers as well, could have been so shocked and knocked out by what you learned? Thanks for asking that. I would begin by saying that having written a book about the Founding Fathers, specifically about James Madison, but the others all came in, you know, they all got their not so small mm -hmm. roles in that book. I was very focused, like a lot of constitutional law professors are, on 1787, on the moment when the Constitution was first drafted. And then perhaps on 1791, when the Bill of Rights got drafted in the follow-up. Mm -hmm. And that's partly because that's what the Supreme Court tends to talk about a lot. We talk about the Federalist Papers, that's the crew that wrote them. And when we get to the Civil War, we tend to think of a narrative that we were all taught in school just about. I mean, maybe some people who were raised in the South weren't taught exactly this narrative, but if, broadly speaking, if you're from the rest of the country, the narrative is the Constitution was the same Constitution we always had, and it was the Framers' Constitution. The Southern states broke the Constitution by seceding. They had to be forced back into the Union by hook or by crook and by military force in the end. And Abraham Lincoln saved the Constitution. And then people say afterwards, and then we enacted the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which prohibited slavery, guaranteed equal protection, and enfranchised African-American men. Like, that's just the received yep. narrative. And so I was no different from anybody else. I believed that narrative mm -hmm. until I started diving into what Lincoln actually did when he was president. You must have gotten very excited, I mean, in a way, once you start realizing that something that you talk about and deal with all the time. There's just a different doorway into seeing what that was. And suddenly you're through the door. I was excited and I was scared. Yeah. And I'll tell you why I was scared. It's because, although I conceived this book 
before Donald Trump was elected president, almost all of the research and writing took place during his presidency Hmm. and a good chunk of it in COVID conditions. (laughs) And when Donald Trump is president of the United States, you do not want to be coming across evidence that Abraham Lincoln, probably (laughs) the greatest president we ever had, broke the constitution and got away with it. I mean, I was really disturbed about it so much so that I thought to myself, you know, if Donald Trump is reelected, you know, can I say this? I mean, it's true, but can I right. say it? I mean, I would have found a way to say it, but still. And, you know, just to make matters even worse, while Trump was president, as you know, I testified in Congress mm-hmm. that he ought to be impeached based on his conduct. And I was asked to sort of channel the framers. And of course, the framers I was channeling was the 1787 bunch. And it is true that they're part of the Constitution about how the president shouldn't break the structure of the presidency of democracy remains good law. Mm-hmm. And it's true that Trump was breaking it. But I just thought to myself, this is bad. <laughs> you know, this is not good. But you know, that's the thing about doing historical work. You know, you have to follow you have to follow the lines of the truth, even if it's stuff that you don't want to teach yourself. Yeah. And then make sure your phones aren't tapped. <laughs> or just so, accept that they are tapped and just live with live. Correct. With it. Correct. So. All right. 1787. Let's go back there as you do so incisively in the book. 1787 and the Constitution as it was then. You say that until you began doing your research, as you just did, you say in the book, you'd always believe there was sort of one Constitution, the original Constitution, which is certainly what I always believed growing up in my studies. And this was the document, Hamilton Madison, whom you've written so well about, and the others. This was the founding code, as it were, for the hopefully moral democracy of the just-born country. And yet, As you describe it now, you see it as less of a moral document for the ages and more as, I don't know, I mean, how would you describe it in light of what you know now? A pragmatic compromise that they reached because they thought they had to get to yes or they would fall apart as a country. And that compromise? The compromise was messy Mm -hmm. and it was built on at least one proposition that plenty of the framers knew was morally wrong, and that was the preservation of slavery. And there were three big parts to that compromise, the slavery compromise. One was the preservation of the international slave trade for 20 years. Mm. That was something that even slaveholders thought was immoral, right? So Mm. even people who were full-time slaveholders who lived on plantations were going to make their lives on slavery and didn't think slavery should ever go away, still thought that the idea of grabbing people up in Africa and bringing them through the Middle Passage to the Americas and selling them was immoral. So they made a distinction between sort of homegrown slavery, if you will, and the idea of a commercial pact with other countries and violation of their Yes. Stunning as that sounds to us today, that was Mm. a really strong distinction in the 18th century. And they preserved for 20 more years something that, as I say, even the slaveholders thought was immoral because the South Carolinians demanded it. You know, the South Carolinians at the time were growing mostly rice. Rice was extremely labor intensive to cultivate, and they were also expanding their holdings a lot, mm-hmm. and they needed more slaves. And they felt that if the international slave trade were outlawed, what that would do is it would raise the price of slaves, and it would be kind of a wealth transfer from Virginians who owned slaves to the South Carolinians. And so they insisted on this. They got the Connecticut delegation to back them because they had trade ties with the Connecticut people, just so no one from the North feels like we're clean in this regard. And, <laughs> right. and they got that written into the Constitution as a 20-year unamendable guarantee. They said it was not amendable. So that was the first compromise, which we barely ever hear about today. 
The second one, we do hear about it, although we don't necessarily get into its details, and that was the three-fifths compromise. Mm -hmm. And the three-fifths compromise is weird because, you know, it's morally repugnant to imagine that a person should be counted as three-fifths of another person, and that is morally repugnant. But it was the South that actually wanted African-Americans to count as a whole person for purposes of counting the number of people who lived in their state's representation, because they weren't going to let African-Americans vote. So the idea was, we'll count you, but you won't have the right to vote. And so we'll have more representation proportionally to ourselves. The people in the North who were opposed to slavery said, well, that's outrageous. You can't count African-Americans at all if they can't vote. You have to count voters because representation is supposed to be of voters. And if, if you want to let black people vote, that's one thing. Then you can count them. But if you don't, they can't vote. And three-fifths was the compromise literally in between zero people and one person for each African-American that they came up with. So again, a compromise with slavery. And last but not least, and much more morally repugnant, even than the other two, bad as those are, was the Fugitive Slave Clause. Mm -hmm. And what that said is that if an enslaved person actually managed to escape from the South and make it to a free state, that person would not become free, which there was some precedent for. In Britain, there had been a decision reached in 1772 an enslaved person who was actually brought from Jamaica to Britain was free on arrival because the laws of Britain didn't recognize slavery. And so the southern states were very worried about the northern states doing something like that. And they wanted to bind the northern states where they would have a constitutional duty to acknowledge the legality of slavery and its constitutionality by requiring them to agree to return slaves. And the point was not just about returning individual people, which is bad enough. It was also about getting the northern states to be implicated in the right. legal structure of slavery. And they got that. And the north said, okay. Mm -hmm. And just about the only concession that the north got, and I'm not even sure it was a concession, is they used euphemisms in the Constitution rather than using the word slave. Mm -hmm. They talked around it. They used language to describe people who were not in charge of themselves or were not fully free. And on that basis, some historians have tried to claim, to my mind, extremely unconvincingly, that there was some desire there not to acknowledge slavery and that therefore the Constitution was not a slave compromise. And that seems mm -hmm. crazy to me. I mean, that was the euphemism of embarrassment. Mm -hmm. It was a kind of fig leaf for the North. It wasn't like a concession that they got out of the South. So that original Constitution of 1787 was, as you describe it, not only a compromised document, but a compromising document shaped and warped by the ratification of slavery both actual and implied in that document. So of slavery, which of course is America's original sin. And without that compromise, would there have been a United States to begin with? I don't think so. And don't trust me, trust Alexander Hamilton, who, though he was not quite the abolitionist that Lin-Manuel Miranda would have us believe. Cue the music. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, as it turns out, there's some evidence that he may even have owned a slave at one point in his life. But that's okay. I mean, it's still the world's best musical for a constitutional law professor, so I'm not complaining. <laughs> but God knows how many more constitutional law students we'll get in the future because of it. So it's good for business. And I don't mean to quibble with it. But even Hamilton got up at the New York ratifying convention in public, and he was challenged about these slavery provisions. And he said, these were the result of an accommodation, his word, that we had to make with the Southern states without which we would not have had a constitution. So that's in real time. They had just been mm -hmm. in Philadelphia when he said that. And so, you know, I think that's a very reasonable judgment. And it remained the judgment of just about all observers for the next 50 years. People understood that they wouldn't have been able to hold the country together. And then they reaffirmed that compromise multiple times 
Each time the North and South got into a fight about whether newly acquired territory would be free or slave, there was a national crisis, and each crisis was resolved by a compromise. The Missouri mm -hmm. Compromise, the Compromise after the Nullification Crisis, right. Kansas Compromise. Each of those compromises basically reaffirmed the idea that slavery would be constitutionally protected and preserved, and that that was necessary to sustaining the Union. And that was mm -hmm. the view that Lincoln still held until and through his inauguration as president of the United States. And he said so. So I want to go into that period between the original drawing up of the Constitution, the end of the 18th century, and then in those first 30, 40 uh, years of the 19th century. Now, this is when Lincoln comes into the picture, and he is growing up in... I didn't quite realize. There were a number of things about this that I learned through your book. Uh, really interesting. Just that the degree to which in Illinois and Kentucky that he was already on the outer territories of what was considered the expansion of America. And so it was a frontier in that sense. And also the degrees to which the connection was so strong between the constitutional compromise, as you describe it, the role of slavery and the push for westward expansion of the United States in order for it to fulfill its, quote, manifest destiny. So if you could talk about that expansion and the political and nationalistic implications of that for slavery, and then bring Lincoln into the picture as he's growing up, there's some fascinating descriptions of those early riverboat trips that he took as a laborer, essentially, that introduced him down into the South to the real slave trade in New Orleans and places like that. So just kind of bringing us up as we sure. get towards the Lincoln that we yeah. later on recognize. So let me try to weave all that together in the yeah. following way. The reason that slavery began to expand as much as it did in the first half of the 19th century was the cotton gin, which mm -hmm. made it really profitable to grow a form of cotton that previously it wasn't profitable to grow across a long swath of the southern part of what is now the United States, but at the time was just partly the United States and partly was newly acquired territory. As it became more profitable to grow cotton further and further, Southern planters moved west within the South. And as they moved west, they cleared land and they started growing cotton on it. And they peopled the area as much as they could with slaves. Mm -hmm. That meant they were not growing produce to eat and they weren't growing livestock to feed themselves. Mm -hmm because it was more profitable to grow this cash crop. That's, you know, we all remember the phrase cash crop from yep. school. That's what it literally means. A cash crop is a crop you can get a lot of cash for right away. And it's worth more than what you would get for ordinary produce. But they had to get fed from somewhere and they had to get clothed somehow. And the answer was further expansion west to the north mm -hmm. across what we would today call the Middle West. Mm -hmm. And that expansion was profitable because if you could grow crops and you could grow livestock, you could sell them to the South, which needed those things, and get a good price for them. Then the question was, how do you get them there? Right. No railroads, no roads, only one way, river. And here, the geography of the United States becomes relevant. The Mississippi River is this unbelievable, enormous artery running down the middle of the country. And remember, this is before steamships. Yep. So on a river like that, there's only one way to go if you don't have steam and you can't really sail up a narrow river because there's not enough room to maneuver. 
basically you got to follow gravity. And it just so happened that the Mississippi River ran south. And so if you were Lincoln, and he actually did this, as you mentioned, two times, what you did, uh, or anybody else like him, you built a boat, a 90-foot boat, a flat boat that required no special boat building skills. This is not, you know, go to Maine and visit a boat building place and marvel at the incredible skill and precision that they exercise in producing these works of art. This is like any frontier carpenter could do it. And you cut down the trees right where you are. You build this 90 foot long boat. You have two oars that don't really row it. They just kind of, and it's mostly steered by rudder. More like Huck Finn. And then you go, yeah, yeah. It, is, it is Huck Finn on a slightly larger scale. And you take your hogs or your wheat or whatever, and you load it on and you point your boat down river and you start going and you hope you won't flip. And you go for weeks if necessary. And Lincoln did this twice. And the point was that the further south you went, the more valuable your livestock and your produce were because you were further from where it came from and you were further into territory where they weren't growing this stuff because they were growing cotton. And was he a politician yet or was he just beginning to enter political life? He was yet? not a politician yet. He was just a kid. Mm -hmm. His whole self-made career, becoming a lawyer, becoming a politician, becoming a surveyor that didn't go so well, becoming a shopkeeper, he failed at that. That was all ahead of him. This was the first real job he ever had. And it was an amazing experience for him because he actually got to see the rest of the country, which he would never have seen otherwise. Mm -hmm. And he saw New Orleans and he saw slavery for the first time as well. And he was, he seems to have been, he noticed it. Years later, he would say that he had been morally horrified by it. The letters from closer to the time don't show him quite as morally horrified as he later said that he was. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't an epiphany so much as a gradual process for him. And then he takes on this increasing understanding of the differences between the North and the South, the compromise economy, if you will, and the interweaving of these things. And yeah, he's living it. He's living that compromise economy. So when he does become a politician, he is a man of the what they call the old Northwest, mm -hmm. Indiana and Illinois. And in that view, the position he takes from the very beginning of his career is that he is not an abolitionist, but he thinks slavery is bad, but you shouldn't abolish it and you shouldn't pressure for its abolition. You should just wait for it to naturally disappear. How? He didn't have an answer for that and neither did anybody else really in his world. But when he gave one of his first really important political speeches that we have a full copy of, which is called the Lyceum Address, which he gave at the Young Men's Lyceum in Springfield, Illinois in 1838, he actually used as his big example of what a leader should not do the idea of freeing slaves. <laughs> he says, there are some people who aren't satisfied with being a governor or a president. They want to be great men of history. They want to be lions or eagles. And he gave his examples, Napoleon and Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great. And he said, people like that will stop at nothing, whether it is enslaving free men or freeing enslaved people. So his great model in this speech of what you should never do, what would make you a kind of dictatorial figure is to free slaves. That tells you where his mind was at that moment. So if during those years, you have to assume that on one side of him are the abolitionists, right? We'll take Frederick Douglass. Be interesting to know what Douglass is saying during these years, let's say the 30s, 40s, and so on. And then on the other side, what is it? Like, I mean, the Lincoln-Douglas debates began at a certain point. And just to take an example of a politician sort of on the other side, what is it that he was defending on the other side? 
In other words, why was he compromising to extents to such a large extent? So you're right. On one side of Lincoln were the abolitionists, and at least in the early years of his career as an abolitionist, the 1840s, really, Frederick mm -hmm. Douglass was one of those abolitionists who believed that the constitutional compromise was fundamentally immoral. So he, mm -hmm. one of his colleagues was William Lloyd Garrison, another abolitionist. Garrison famously burned the Constitution at a rally, and was famous for saying that the Constitution was an agreement with death and a covenant with hell. Well, there's some dialogue for you. Yeah. Um, which is a quotation of a biblical verse. Yeah, some good dialogue. Yeah, not really pulling any punches. <laughs> so Douglas started thinking that. Over time, Douglas shifted to the idea that the Constitution was self-contradictory because mm -hmm. it was both free and slave. And then later on, he eventually worked his way in the 1850s to the view that the Constitution should be read against the grain of its slave character mm -hmm. in order to make an argument for freedom using the Constitution. But that was on one side. That mm -hmm. was free slaves now, anything else is immoral. Then there was Lincoln saying, don't push the abolition and slavery is bad. It should die a natural death or maybe people should voluntarily free their slaves and they'll be compensated for it. Mm -hmm. Then came people who said, well, slavery is, you know, basically fine. And this is basically a normal arrangement. We don't love it, but it should simply be allowed to continue more or less as it was. And last but not least came some Southerners who in the 1830s and 40s shifted from what most Southerners thought in 1787, namely that slavery wasn't great, but they were stuck with it because they relied mm -hmm. on it. They shifted to the view that is sometimes called scientific racism. This was the idea that people of African descent were actually inferior and that slavery was their quote unquote natural state. And that was the view that ultimately made its way into the Confederate constitution. You know, the people mm -hmm. who supported the Confederate constitution literally put in the constitution, the principle of white supremacy. And the vice president of the Confederacy gave this famous speech called the Cornerstone Speech, where he said the cornerstone of the Confederacy was the idea of white supremacy. So a constitution was sort of the compromise constitution plus this cornerstone uh, exactly. about white That's supremacy. what they said. They said, this mm -hmm. is the exact same constitution we've always had, except the old constitution wasn't clear enough on the idea of white supremacy. And we need to add that in. Nice. Yeah. So, nice. nice uh, <laughs> that's the right description. I mean, I, I write about this in the book. I mean, when you actually read what the Confederates had to say there, it's so, it sort of slaps you in the face. I mean, we know mm -hmm. on one level, the Confederacy was devoted to slavery, but they weren't like hiding that fact. They were just completely on the surface about the idea that their Confederacy was devoted to the principle of white supremacy, which they said was moral and natural. Lincoln runs for president and he wins. And I'm trying to make our way up to his first inaugural address, which is generally not one of his best remembered, but you spend some real time on it in a very interesting fashion. And I guess my questions are, one, what the election of Abraham Lincoln, seen in this historical context with regard to the birth of the Constitution and the years leading up to the Civil War, what did it represent what did it catalyze in a way that we don't really normally think of an election doing? And then how did that express itself in his first address or not when he was actually brought into office? The Southern states interpreted Lincoln's election as proof that the balance of power nationally had reached the point 
where they were never going to be able to expand further to new slave territory. Mm-hmm. And so they were worried that in consequence, they might be encircled by free states and might over time come to be pressured to end slavery. Mm-hmm. And it was using that argument that they announced that seven states seceded between the time that Lincoln was elected and the time that he took office. Because in those days, the election was over, you know, roughly in the end of November, roughly when ours are, but the inauguration didn't take place until March, mm-hmm. unlike now when we, we do it in January. Right. Ask yourself what that would have looked like in if 2021. <laughs> if there, seven, if, you know, seven if January 6th succeeding. had been three months from anyway. Yes. We, that's another conversation. Yeah, it's another we, we conversation. Yeah. Anyway, so in that period of time, those states seceded. Lincoln wanted them to come back, and he had no army to make them do it. The entire U.S. regular army was 25,000 troops. That was such a shock to me. How, that's astonishing. Because there had been wars, you know, all through these decades. Of- there were, but the wars, but since, 18, since 1812, the wars that the United States had fought had been limited wars, wars against Native Americans and the Mexican-American War. And what the U.S. would do is it would bulk up the number of troops in wartime, and then it would bulk the regular military down and rely on militia to call them up. Mm -hmm. So the U.S. Army was tiny, and so Lincoln had to convince the southern states to come back. And he was also worried that some states that had not yet seceded were going to secede. Some of them did, some of them didn't. But some of them, you know, if Maryland seceded, he thought, the game is over. If Maryland and Delaware, mm-hmm. which were both slave states, were, had seceded. Yeah, but they were yeah, northern thought, states. Yeah, they were, they, were, they were north of the Mason-Dixon line, but they mm-hmm. were slave states. Yeah. And so he was worried. I mean, think about it. Washington, D.C. is sandwiched between Maryland and Virginia. So if Virginia seceded and then Maryland seceded, the capital would have been indefensible because mm-hmm. it would have been surrounded on all sides by the Confederacy. I mean, it was a bad situation. Yeah. So in his first inaugural address, which is not on the wall of the Lincoln Memorial, where they have the <laughs> right. second inaugural address and they have the Gettysburg address. Yep. Lincoln begins by laying out in the first paragraph, the guarantee says the constitution protects slavery. I understand it to protect slavery. I have no intention of changing that. And I don't have the legal authority to change that, which is why no one reads that address today. Right. right? It's Lincoln just putting it right out there. It's another thing where you read it and you just think to yourself, whoa, that yeah. was the first thing he wanted to say on his yeah. first day in office? That wasn't you know, in the movie. That wasn't yeah. in the movie. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> very well put. That was not <laughs> in the movie. So, you know, and the reason he was doing it was he wanted to restore the compromise. The sense was that the southern states no longer believed in the compromise because they claimed, well, the election of Lincoln proves there's no compromise available. And Lincoln wanted to make it clear, no, there is a compromise available. Come back and we'll guarantee slavery. And he's not faking that. He's trying Mm -hmm. desperately to keep the states that haven't seceded from seceding, and he's trying desperately to bring the other states back. And And slavery is relatively in a backseat to this. keeping the union in place. As a moral question. Yeah, completely in the backseat. Even somewhat later in the war, as he got closer to emancipation, he still famously said, if I could save the union by freeing none of the slaves, I would. If I could save the union by freeing all of the slaves, I would. That's much later when he starts to think about freeing slaves. But up front, he's thinking there's only one solution, which is to go back to the old compromise. And the old compromise is slavery. And so just one more point about this, just a few months into his presidency, the 1856 Republican presidential candidate this fascinating, weird dude, John C. Fremont, always spelled with a little acute accent over the E. 
he had been made a general. In the Civil War era, you made your political friends into generals. Mm -hmm. And so he'd been made a general, and he was in charge of the Missouri War District. And he began unilaterally freeing the slaves of people who were loyal to the Confederacy there. <laughs> and Lincoln freaked out. And he wrote yeah. him a letter saying, I'm telling you to stop. And Fremont wrote back, no. He said, if you want me to stop, you're going to have to contramand my orders. And Lincoln fired him, reversed his orders. And then in a letter that Lincoln wrote to one of his friends, which he knew would be for a quotation, Lincoln said, look, to free slaves on the say-so of the idea that their masters are disloyal is dictatorship. Yeah. Right. Dictator so Lincoln's this, word. Lincoln's right. calling it dictatorship. So this is how you know. Yeah. You know, people sometimes say to me, and you know, even some reviewers seem to be worried about this, like, how do you know that Lincoln really meant the things that he said? And of course, that's always a historical question. But part of the answer is he said them many times, and mm -hmm. he used unequivocal language. So he said it would yeah. be dictatorship to do this. He did not have the constitutional authority to do it. And when it was done, he reversed it. This, of course, bodes for what is going to happen as he begins to take actions that are, as you say, that are actions that break the Constitution, that actually fatally wound the Constitution. And he does so knowingly under incredible pressure. So now we're in the thick of it. The Civil War has begun. They have no army to speak of. Fort Sumter, they, they don't even have people to defend Fort Sumter. He has to raise 75,000 troops, which he does in a perhaps constitutional or unconstitutional manner. And now his thinking about slavery as a moral question during this time, as he is battling tooth and nail to keep the union together or to keep it from fatally and finally breaking. How is this balance struck? Yeah. So two of the things that he does to break the constitution, he does really fast. The first one is to go to war, to coerce the Southern states to return. The mm -hmm. Buchanan administration had gone to its attorney general and they'd gotten a formal opinion from him that said, it's true that the Southern states aren't allowed to secede, but if they do, there's no authority in the federal government to force them back in. Look in the constitution, where does it say you can force somebody back in? It's a theory of the consent of the governed and the white Southerners had been really clear. They didn't consent to be governed anymore. And right. they had gotten together in these, you know, the constitution was ratified in ratifying conventions. So they unratified it in unratifying conventions, secession conventions. And so if the theory is you can enter into a union by ratification, right. presumably you could exit that way. So Lincoln's view was not only that they couldn't, but that he had the authority on his own, even before he convened Congress to force them back in. Mm -hmm. The second thing Lincoln did was as it got harder to defend Washington, because it was hard to get troops through Baltimore, he allowed one of his generals to put Baltimore, Maryland, which was not part of the South, part of the Confederacy, mm -hmm. under martial law. And then he authorized his generals to arrest anyone they wanted between Philadelphia and Baltimore, actually between Philadelphia and Washington, D.C., and hold them indefinitely without charge or trial. And to do that, he had to suspend the writ of habeas corpus. And the writ of habeas is, corpus is the, yeah. yeah, it's this basic constitutional principle, sometimes called the right of rights, that says if the government grabs you up, they have to present you, usually within 24 hours, in front of a duly designated court of law run by an independent judge, decision maker, and say, we're charging Feldman with thus and such a charge, and we'll put him on trial. And if he's convicted, he goes to prison. And if he's not, he goes free. 
And so if they don't have to show up in court and produce your body, that's what habeas corpus means, and say we're charging Feldman with this crime, then the government can do whatever it wants. Is this still the only instance of a president uh, suspending the writ of habeas corpus? It is, yeah. And the Constitution makes it really pretty clear that it's up to Congress to do this, not the president. Mm -hmm. The whole provision of the Constitution that authorizes suspension is put in Article 1, right after the laundry list of stuff that Congress can do and right in part of a laundry list of things Congress can't do. And article two is where you of the Constitution is where you get to the president. So it's just obvious in context and everyone knew. And the chief justice of the Supreme court issued an opinion saying that only Congress can do this. And, and yet, Lincoln did it anyway. And yet he persisted. Right. And he's, he was able to do that because he had the then, army. Yes. He had the army. So that was the second thing he did that was a direct assault, in a way, on the Constitution that he originally seemed to be trying to protect. Yeah, swore to defend. He was the whole time he was saying, I'm sworn to defend the Constitution. And in fact, so this comes to the, the key point about emancipation. His justification for these things was military necessity. He developed this strong idea that he was commander in chief. And if he had the right to fight this war... And then he had the right to do anything it took to win the war, including mm-hmm. shut down hundreds of newspapers, which he did, arrest somewhere between 15 and 40,000 people for opposing the war and detain them people. without trial in yep. these military prisons that were called American Bastilles. So that theory of military necessity originally did not convince him that he had the authority to free slaves. But slowly, 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 over the course of a year and change, as he was expanding his authority and making more and more claims, Mm -hmm. and as he realized that the war wasn't going to be winnable by convincing the South to return, he was trying to come up with something else, some magic bullet that would enable him to threaten the South and to change the basic calculus of power between the North and the South. And he hit on emancipation Mm -hmm. as the basis for doing that and as a basis for changing the war from a war about union, which is how he pitched it from the beginning, Mm -hmm. to a war that was a moral war about ending slavery, which is how he began to pitch it to some degree after emancipation. So let me ask you, he's on the verge of putting forth the Emancipation Proclamation, which I think certainly is the most momentous document of all of American history outside of the Declaration of Independence. And you've just described him in this 18-month period which appears to be the most transformative period of his political and moral reckoning for all the writing and speechifying that had gone on in the years prior. This is the part where if he was ever going to transform into the Lincoln that we remember and that has been enshrined, this is it. How, as a person writing about him within the context of the Constitution and of slavery, Was this a transformation that began to happen for you? Because first, some scales must have fallen from your eyes, but then you have a different situation as this man begins to act within a slightly different way of thinking. What what went on in your thinking about him and where did that leave you as he went through this time? So it was a trajectory, right? At first I thought, oh yeah, I admire Lincoln. He did all these great things. Then I thought, whoa, you know, look what he's doing here. He's just violating the constitution right, left and center. And then I saw the genius of, and the boldness of what it took to eliminate slavery. And here's why. Slavery wasn't just a provision of the Constitution. It was the basis for the whole compromise. Mm-hmm. 
So when he said we're not going to have slavery anymore, he was effectively saying there would be no compromise. The United States would win the war against the Confederacy and it would force a new arrangement where there would not be compromises like this in the future. That was an incredibly bold thing to do. And it was incredibly risky. He knew it might not work. There was a period of time after the Emancipation Proclamation where it looked like he was going to lose the election of 1864. Yeah. And he was actually preparing himself, it seems, for the possibility that the Emancipation Proclamation would be reversed. Oh, boy. I mean, he was in total panic. And then I began to see it as just this transformative moment in the history of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And then I started looking around at the time for other people who, and to see how contemporaries understood it. And sure enough, other people did read it that way. So amazingly, Karl Marx, who was watching these events from Germany, in a newspaper article that he wrote in 1862, described the Emancipation Proclamation as, quote, the most important document in American history since the establishment of the Union, tantamount to the tearing up of the old American Constitution. Hmm. And that, I was that. like, yeah, Marx, not, not an idiot, you know, maybe not right about yeah. the long-term trajectory of history, but a smart person and a, you know, a genius in many yes. ways, an observer, he got it. He could see that this was the tearing up of the old constitution because it was the end of the slavery compromise on which things were based. Mm -hmm. And so that was an extraordinary thing for Lincoln to have done. It was a high risk gambit and he knew it would put him in the history books. And he had become the kind of person he had said he didn't want to be in the address that he gave in 1838 at the Young Men's Lyceum. There he had said, mm -hmm. you shouldn't want to be a Caesar or a Napoleon who frees men and establishes his place in history. But that's actually what he had become. He had become someone who trajectory. was at that stage, at that capacity yeah. to transform the union. One person as president actually did that. And that actually made me way more impressed with Lincoln than I began by being. I think he's far more risk-taking, far, far more heroic, yep. and far more dramatic if we acknowledge him as the person who broke the Constitution and remade it, rather than thinking of him as just the guy who happened to be in charge and saved the Union. Right. So as you describe it, the Emancipation Proclamation was by far... And the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments that it engendered coming out of it, that, that was really the greatest act of violence, if you will, against the Constitution, the one that really reshaped it. So, of course, the Civil War had to be won for any of this to become reality, and that happened. Lincoln himself would not survive the process. So why do you feel that Lincoln's Constitution, this Constitution we're discussing, has proved so resilient and survive the century and a half since. We have a nation have failed to live up to its standards. It's proved far more resilient than any document other than the Declaration of Independence in a sense. And as you discuss in the book, Reconstruction was an incredible betrayal in the end. And then decades passed of Jim Crow and the Ku Klux Klan, and it really wasn't until Brown versus Board of Education and the civil rights movement that any of this began to be readdressed and yet this still had held. So I'm wondering what makes it so strong relative to what had come before? I love that question, John. I think it's a very thoughtful and deep one. I think, and this is now not historical interpretation, but speculation to a greater degree. Mm -hmm. I think that it helps us to stay together as a country to know that we're committed 
to some shared moral goals. I think the problem with the Constitution of 1787 was that there wasn't a core moral value in it. You know, yes, there was a Bill of Rights, which suggests a kind of liberty, but that Bill of Rights didn't even extend to the states to begin with. And so a constitution that was sort of a pragmatic deal, we need each other to go forward, isn't really the most possibly durable model for keeping people together who have disparate interests. But if you believe that we're committed to something common, to equality and liberty for everybody, what Lincoln called the new birth of freedom, mm -hmm. then we have a common project that we're committed to. And even when, as we are now, we're arguing a lot as a country about how best to do that so that we're very polarized. We are very polarized, not by the standards of 1861, but by today's standards, by modern standards, we're polarized. Even when we're polarized, it is possible to begin the process of saying what we all stand for. Mm -hmm. We may not agree on what equality looks like in practice, but we do know that we're committed to equality in principle. We do know that we're committed to freedom in principle. And we know that we want our institutions to deliver those things for us. And that, I think, really is durable. That has the kind of capacity mm -hmm. as a story we tell ourselves about why we deserve to exist. And it also helps us when we're recognizing that we've messed something up. To go back to where we began, this question of you know, the national debate that we're having now about mm -hmm. our legacies of slavery and of racism, I think we do our best as a country when we say, yeah, we, we messed that one up, and here's what we're going to try to do to do it better. Mm -hmm. I don't think we do well when we pretend that we've had it perfect all along. But what the Constitution, that's Lincoln's Constitution, does is it says, here's the moral standard we should hold ourselves up to. It's aspirational, as you say. It's aspirational. Yes. Mm -hmm. If we're not achieving liberty for all or equality for all, let's do better. Mm -hmm. We didn't have gay marriage until recently, and lots of people thought we shouldn't. And then the Supreme Court said, actually, it's entailed in the idea of freedom and equality and dignity. And not very many years later, almost everybody says, yeah, that's right. You know, including people who just a few years ago were thinking, no, 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 this is too much of a change from our traditions. Mm -hmm. That's our capacity as a nation actually to make progress based on those shared moral values. And uh, to me, that's also our way out of polarization, not today or tomorrow, but over time, that's our route out by pointing to the things that we share in common. And those are our values and our aspirations. It's been fascinating for me to dive into the book, listen to the podcast, Deep Background. I really enjoyed this conversation. I can't thank you enough for coming on, as always. Thank you so much, Arne, and thank you for engaging the book so deeply and reading it so thoughtfully and carefully. Thank you. My great pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Page. You can catch previous podcast episodes at lithub.com or at the Sun Valley Writers Conference website, svwc.com. I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Thanks so much for listening. Beyond the Page is produced by John Burnham Schwartz and James Tooley. Original music by Dean Grinsfelder and production support provided by Jay Shelliday. <laughs>